0: If you listened to the last season of Remotely Curious, you might remember that I record this podcast in my bedroom closet. I get up close and personal with my wardrobe. I'm surrounded by cardigans, my favorite vintage jean jacket, and blouses I love. But I also realize that I never get to wear these things anymore. And it's made me wonder, how has my style changed since I haven't been going into the office? On one hand, I love that I only dress in athleisure now. I can just throw on a pair of my favorite leggings and be done with it. And to be honest, I can barely tolerate tight pants or zippers since the pandemic. But I also really miss dressing up for work. Choosing what to wear used to be a fun and creative part of my day, and it made me look forward to going into work. Nowadays, I notice that even when I put on shoes instead of slippers or wear a skirt to my Zoom meetings instead of sweatpants, I feel more awake and vital, just more productive. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual first work. Today on the show, we're going to talk to fashion historian Deirdre Clementi, someone who can explain the changes our collective wardrobes have gone through, and tell us that this casualization,
1: it's nothing new.
0: But first, I wanted to hear from Dropbox creative producer Kira C.
1: I loved high heels. I loved dresses. I would wear these all the time where people would be really dressed down. I would show up overdressed to situations.
0: Kira has been at Dropbox for a few years now, but she was working remotely before she was with us. And back then, she dressed up for her Zoom meetings, too. Around 2020, she got a new job
1: at a corporate headquarters for a restaurant brand that required her to go into the office. Something that was really unique about that role was that uniforms were required even at the corporate level. And what those uniforms looked like were very casual. So it was jeans, and you had the option for a polo or a really oversized sweatshirt. So when I started there, it was very counter to who I was. It felt really uncomfortable, and I felt like I lost myself a little bit. During the pandemic, we were required to maintain that uniform. Even when she was working from home. And in some ways, that uber-casual style changed her style outside of work, too. I found myself being drawn to more casual clothing. I was always picking out oversized sweaters or oversized sweatshirts. When I left that role, I intentionally had a conversation with myself of, you need to rediscover who you are through clothing, you need to go out, go shopping, find things that make you feel confident and make you feel beautiful.
0: This is exactly where cultural historian Deirdre Clementi says we've landed after 3 years of working remotely. The only corporate dress codes we want to follow are our own sense of style. She's a professor at University of Las Vegas and an expert on the 20th century American fashion industry. She's written about workwear, business casual, and dress codes. Sounds like a dream job to me. And she's the perfect person to speak with about how we got here. I first asked her how she got into studying fashion and clothing.
2: Well, like so many people, I was a crazy thrift shopper growing up. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, took my mom's car, said I was going to the grocery store, drove over to the next town because they had a Salvation Army.
0: Eventually, she became a fashion journalist, but decided to go back to school to study clothing and history.
2: I went to Carnegie Mellon and studied cultural history and that's really where I got into the history of the casualization of the American wardrobe. And that sort of has become my expertise and by association with that, I'm an expert on athleisure, have become very knowledgeable about the evolution of the California fashion industry. And uh, so I'm half business historian, half cultural historian. I'm curious now,
0: how would you describe your style or do
2: you have a piece of favorite clothing? Well, I should say that my mentor is a 87 year old woman who was a black belt in high end shopping on Rodeo Drive. So most of my wardrobe are her cast offs, and we happen to be the same size. So I have a big part of her enormous collection, and uh, I would say I'm I'm very tall. I'm six feet tall, so I love quirky outfits vintage Valentino suits and, you know what, Hoka tennis shoes because I also have four kids and I'm constantly going, going, going.
0: They are so comfortable. It's like walking on 20 condensed pillows. They're so comfortable. It's
2: ridiculous. I thought I got a pair of white ones and I thought everybody was going to make fun of me. And my very cool graduate students said, oh, those are awesome. I said, she said, they're trending on TikTok right now. I said, okay, good. Well, I want to ask you kind of a big question.
0: What in your mind is the function of fashion? What purpose or purposes can it serve?
2: Well, I always describe fashion in a way that uh, sort of bends the knee to one of the most famous theorists of fashion, uh, this guy named George Zimmel, who was living around, you know, 1900, 1910 and was writing about fashion. And I, I sort of t- sort of take the knee to his idea, which is fashion is this odd um, tension that exists between Dressing for oneself and showing individuality, but dressing to be affiliated with a group. And that, that sort of balance is what I think drives fashion. And um, what's really interesting about the 20th century is that, that's, that balance that was sort of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, has really leaned much more towards individual expression. And that's why I like to study it so much. And that's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to the topic, because it really does give you insight into the development of American consumerism, of American business, and the ways that society interacts with this need of ours to express our own individuality.
0: Well, I'd love to talk a little about workwear specifically. So I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit the workwear trends of today
2: and maybe how they've shifted in the past century. One of the biggest misconceptions I think about workwear in terms of women's workwear is that women all of a sudden in the early 1900s started working as secretaries and taking the subway in to the office and living this sort of uh, women going into the workplace. Here's the deal women have been working forever. Whether selling their labor to a shoe factory in uh, Massachusetts or as a maid or as a laundress, women have been working. So the idea of workwear, something that's worn for public presentation and not actual the function of your job, is a 20th century phenomenon as women really entered a public sphere of working. So early workwear, when we're talking like 1905, 1910, as American culture more broadly is changing to have more managerial roles, uh, more sort of women as typographers and, you know, secretaries and that sort of function working as operators of telephone systems, all of these kinds of secretarial administrative assistant kinds of tasks, we start to see women needing to wear clothes that adhere to a social standard of what they should look like in public. So those early work wear ensembles would be suits, they would be a, a French heel, which is sort of that short squat heel that exists up until the early 1930s. Uh, and what, you're, what they're doing is that they're wearing clothes that are viewed by others that can say, oh, she's on her way to work, right? But you're, fun- you're using clothes and you have to travel through the world to get to your office, right? So that's a huge part of what defines what these young uh, professionals are wearing in the first several decades of the century right and of course you're going with hose you're going with a coat heaven forbid you would not wear your hat i mean you just would think something was wrong with someone that didn't have a hat on so there's all of these sort of components to this public persona of your workwear and this is a similar phenomenon happening with men as men in the 30s late 30s, into the 40s, sort of, you sort of see them stepping away from a three-piece suit and into um, a sports coat and odd pants, as they would call it, which meant like non-matching pants. But you see this in women and you start to see women wear sweater sets, accessorized with a little pin that they called gadgets. Uh, you would w- see them in uh, long skirts, but you also start to see because the rules behind clothing are changing in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s you start to see corporate-imposed dress codes where businesses are now saying, oh, people are so confused about when and where they can't wear those damn sweater sets. We better write it down and make it uh, official policy that every woman has to wear hose." This is into the the early 60s, right, where a lot of women are saying, I don't want to wear that. I want to wear a pantsuit. Oh, gosh, that's a whole other podcast. But you really see this, uh, the the idea of human resources department and and corporate management controlling what was worn in their public space that they were in charge of, right? The office. And of course, here's the big shocker. Women are the ones that are regulated. So you see the men will have something that says, you have to wear a tie. Okay, thanks. And you must keep a clean shaved face or something, you know, innocuous like that. And then for women, you'll see pages upon pages of the different things you can and can't wear. So that's really in the 50s and 60s is really where you see workwear become a little bit of a contested ground of what's appropriate and what's not. And ever since then, it's been this back and forth of what you can and can't wear. And you start to see a person-driven pushback on these rules and as people more slowly define what they want. And I would say the 80s and 90s are really the signature point for that. And they sort of culminate in the end of the century with business casual. Um, and a lot of these are people-driven social and cultural changes. This, is, this stuff doesn't come out of the air. It's because people don't want to wear pantyhose anymore and they don't want to wear that tie.
0: Yeah, I don't want to wear pantyhose <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't. I, I would have to like really
0: dig in the drawers to get. <laughs> yeah, unless they're like sparkly, then maybe. But in any case, not not you know under a rule. So okay, workwear has just gotten more and more casual over the past century as workers push back on dress codes and insist on more personal choice and comfort in what they wear, especially now that most of us are working from home. I read an article with you in the Atlantic about this about why American workers now dress so casually and i'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how silicon valley and tech
2: has played into this well it's such a there's it's such a, an incredible box of cultural change. So Silicon Valley is in California, and that's a a key reason it was able to make these social and cultural changes uh, that start in the late 1970s as people are really realizing, hey, at these tech firms, uh, what we're really interested in is is not how you look and how we present ourselves, right? That's not our priority. Our priority is what we produce and how productive we are. So as people's mentalities shift from sort of the public representation of how their companies should be and what their workers should adhere to social standards imposed by somebody else. And they move more towards in through this late 70s into the 80s a worker focused work culture that listens to the workers and also sort of in many ways allows them a higher degree of individuality than you would at say a bank in South Carolina. So again, this really the the case of Silicon Valley really shows us something that's essential to understand in the casualization of clothing and casualization of workwear in particular, which is geography matters, right? Where you are matters. What kind of job you're doing matters. So people sitting at a computer uh, for how many hours. They want these people to work 12, 15, 18 hours a day. They don't really want to have to deal with the drama of making them put on a tweed blazer in case somebody shows up. So the context of these changes is really important. And what ends up happening is that the people are productive. The, uh, they're happy. I, I mean, I've heard young people say I w- they wouldn't take a job because there was a dress code. And this is, you know, the early days of of that rejection of these social standards that were not created for them or for their careers or for their mentality. And they just don't work in the workplace. And that's one of the issues that sort of is plaguing workwear today is that, you know, now many people want their people to come back into the office. They want them to dress a certain way. And it's really like the cat's out of the bag. I hear you're working on a book about 12 events in history that
0: changed fashion. I'm curious if you could share a few of the most surprising or interesting in your mind.
2: Well, I, you know, I, I have to admit, as a historian, I really have fallen in love, and it always has played a role in the garment industry with technology. So I start the book off with the 1887 introduction of the electric cutting knife, because what that does is it's, it spurs mass production into... Uh, into being in a way that just, you know, it just starts to let things rip out of factories. So the electronic cutting knife enables mass production in a way that sets the tone for the 20th century and American consumerism in the 20th century. So I start the book with that, and I end the book with the opening of H&M, on Fifth Avenue in 2000. And you you see the rise of fast fashion. And I talk about uh, sort of the the ideas behind fast fashion, which is closing the gap between the consumer, uh, the retailer, and the manufacturer. I'm curious, if you were to write this book
0: two or three decades from now, do you think you would put the pandemic on a list of events that changed fashion? Or maybe another way of saying it is, has working from home and the pandemic changed how we dress irrevocably.
2: I'm going to answer your question in a classic historian way, which is to use examples from history. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. The the short answer is yes. We will never go back to pre-pandemic formality of clothing, which, let's put it this way, was not that formal. But when I think about what the pandemic really did for the American wardrobe, I, I, I think back on other moments in history where we had these incredible cataclysmic, happenings that shook up production, consumption, national identity at such a level that it it changed the way that we dress, right? But what happened in, like, let's say, for example, World War II, is that World War II sped into existence cultural changes that had been brewing for several years. So for example, women had been wearing pants since the early 1930s in very specific contexts. You could wear them on a picnic. You could wear them uh, if you're painting a theater set after school one day. So there's these ideas of time and place specificness, but what World War II did was it provided a venue for people to dress a certain way that then after the war, they were like, yeah, we don't wanna go back to not wearing pants, FYI. And the the returning GIs threw their arms up, we wanna see your legs, we miss those bodies. Like they felt very entitled to see these women's bodies. Mothers hated it, fashion editors hated it, but the women themselves were gonna wear these pants after World War II, they didn't give a care. So what I like to think of that as is the idea that cataclysmic events speed into action things that had been brewing, And when you look at how people dress now, really what it is, it's it's the pandemic has allowed the next phase of casualization to happen. And it's also allowed the next phase of individual dress and personal uh, choice in how we present ourselves to come to the fore. And there'll be a whole generation of new American dressers who don't remember life before the pandemic or simply can't wear pants with a zipper in them. Uh, because it's just too uncomfortable. So I think that the pandemic has, is one of those examples in history that we will point to and say, wow, that was a turning point in public presentation and the American wardrobe more broadly. You know, there's a lot of fashion theorists. There's one in particular the name is Herbert Bloomer, who says that, you know, no longer are we driven by dressing up to a social standard imposed by an elite class, but rather, and he's writing in the 1960s, We police ourselves, and what he calls this process, collective selection, and who gets to be, who is part of the collective? Everybody, we all get to say. I think of how
0: now it's totally okay to wear sweatpants to a Zoom meeting, or even more extreme, it's cool to wear pajamas on airplanes. I see it everywhere now, even though just a few decades before you'd put on your finest while traveling. To me, that feels like collective selection, Things have gotten so casual that I personally miss the days when I felt inspired to iron my pants before flying. But clearly, the pajama wearers feel differently. They've gotten the message that it's okay to let loose.
2: So it's it's much more representative of sort of true pe- people's true uh, self-expression than being told you need to wear this, that, this, and make sure you pin your hat into place and here are your gloves to wear on the airplane than, you know... Than, it, than other examples, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, yes,
0: it's so fascinating. Um, somewhat related, what is the strangest workplace fashion trend you've come across?
2: The, 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 the workplace trend that I find to be one of the most confusing and um, receives far too much credit in the, among the fashion historians is the Hawaiian shirt trend of being able to wear Hawaiian shirts on a Friday. Right. In the late 40s and 50s, uh, this is a perfect example of manufacturers teaming up with workplaces. Uh, there was a trend for Ho- Hawaiian produced uh, shirts, right? Hawaiian shirts, as we call them now, but they were made in Hawaii and Hawaii was making a very strong play for the mainland fashion to pick up these shirts. So one way that came that a lot of marketers that a marketer came up with and said, "Okay, if we can get people have to wear them. A lot of people had them in their wardrobe by the 50s or whatever, but people you could wear them on a Friday. So people started buying these shirts to be able to wear on Fridays. But it became a way that workplaces were able to put a question mark on the dress code or at least like a a release valve that they could say, oh, it's going to be Hawaiian shirt Friday. You're going to wear your shirt on Friday, Bob. Oh, you know, I am, you know, that level of sort of camaraderie work culture, you know, collaboration and this idea that, hey, under these particular parameters, we can get a little crazy and wear these particular shirts. And it, you know, it really is an interesting idea because that's also how business casual got into mainstream workwear is through the idea of casual Fridays, dress down Fridays. When you see that throughout the 90s, I mean, I'm dating myself, but when I was living in um, New York City, that was in, in the late 1990s. It was, oh, dress down Friday, that was a big deal. And HR managers had a, again, had a hard time reconvening control once people taste freedom. And that's the one thing people don't really understand about fashion. They're like, will we go back to dressing like the days of mad men? Now, I'm a historian. I don't predict the future. But if I had to, I would say no. We're not going back to a time when uh, when people wore pantyhose and hats into the office and gloves. And, you know, just that that's not way, the way culture works. Well,
0: I know you've written a lot about how dress codes disproportionately affect women and people of color. I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about that. Dress
2: codes are a way for the establishment to control, uh, people that they view as potentially disruptive to the way that they want their employees to look. So obviously on the forefront of that is women, women showing their body, women not. And again, we come back to the pants, the, the, you know, Garments that are contentious garments, uh, pantyhose, uh, certain kinds of girdles. There was times that several of these companies required women to wear girdles in through the seventies. That they you could be checked by the human resources manager. I mean, it's borderline incomprehensible. So dress codes are put into place to control people. And you know what's really interesting is when you think about the, the, the sort of intersections between dress codes and race, is that a lot of times the dress codes that were imposed upon people of color were dress codes that were then had to be policed by the people themselves, right? So, for example, at Morehouse College in 1935, if you weren't wearing the the correct and usually significantly more formal clothing than the boys at Princeton would have been wearing out to the supper club, right? Uh, If you weren't wearing the the proper clothing, your, your colleagues would be the ones who would say you're not allowed to wear that. So a kind
0: of self-enforcement or enforcement from our peers. A bit like the idea of collective selection where the social group decides the rules.
2: And of course, that also happens in the workplace later on, which is this idea of uh, uh, workers policing other workers or an older woman saying, oh, you need to button up one of those buttons, darling. That's not how we do things here. So this idea of written and unwritten dress codes, and it's usually those unwritten dress codes that really... Um, are much more complicated for people of color and women.
0: I also wanted to know what happens to the idea of collective selection when we aren't physically in a group, like right now when we're spread out all over the country.
2: Well, I think the answer to that is that's what we're struggling to figure out now, right? How do we collectively select when we don't see each other? And, you know, clothing is such a visual thing. So you don't know what Mary has on in the zoom meeting, uh, cause you can't see the bottom half of her. But I mean, I think it, it, I think it's, it's, it's part, it's partly how do we decide as a society what is acceptable to wear? You know, that's, that's an element of it, but also a huge element of it is how do we feel in the clothes? Like as much as, you know, people wanting to be able to wear a hoodie into their office. And if their, you know, boss says, Hey, that's cool. They should be able to do that you should be able to say, oh, you know what? I actually do feel better when I do a little bit of a dress up. I that's that's sort of where I sit myself is like I'll often put on my really expensive yoga pants and you know and, and one of my grandmother's sweaters that I love so much. And you know the cool thing about working from home is that I'm sure so many people have objects and pieces of clothing in their closet that they don't wear. And you know maybe it's time for people to sort of go back into the closet and look at their clothes see what they're going to you know, be using, and try to implement some of the things that they haven't worn in a long time into their clothes and to sort of celebrate what they have. And if it's something that you don't celebrate, you know, give it to the good world.
0: I know that there is a lot we have gained from casualization in the way of freedom and feeling authentic to ourselves. I notice for myself something that you're just describing, which is that when I dress up a little more, when instead of wearing sweatpants under my Zoom, I have on you know, jeans that I like, or even skirt that I like, I personally feel more productive, more awake, more vital. And fashion for me personally, and many people I know is a means of sort of joyful self-expression. So I'm curious if the literature or if your experience has anything to say about what people feel like they may have lost with casualization. And Kira C, the Dropbox creative producer we heard from earlier, had a similar question.
1: So what I've experienced in my daily life and what I'm curious about is the relationship between dress and mental health. What I've noticed for myself is on days that I am feeling more confident in what I'm wearing and how I'm looking, I'm presenting as my best self. I want to know more
2: about what the relationship between dress and our mental health is. So there's people studying uh, labor management. There's psychologists studying what does casual clothing do in a you know it makes and some people find it makes people happier in their work environment and more comfortable and more themselves. Then some studies find it makes them less professional in their interactions with each other. So it's really like a mixed bag of literature as to the role of dress in worker productivity. But I think as culture and society moves forward um, and changes, that's not going to really be a difference. I mean, I think people need to look in the face the fact that um, this is what people want to wear. When I talk to people about clothes, and a lot of the people I talk to you know, I have conversations with our our clothing type people, and they feel a sadness of the lack of their wardrobe. And in fact, after the pandemic, I myself went on a personal mission to wear two thirds of the clothes in my closet. And sometimes I was sitting at dinner in a, uh, you know, Armani suit that was given to me by my mentor. And my kids are like, what? And I'm like, I promised myself I would wear it today because I wanted the physical experience of wearing those clothes. So I think there is a sadness uh, that comes from any cultural change as you live it out, right? And you realize, I just don't have a use for this anymore. Um, but for the people who don't really care about clothes, there's a freedom in that, right? For the for the non-clothes horses among us, there's a freedom in not having to, A, maintain this wardrobe of stuff you only wear to work. So I think what the pandemic and, you know, remote work to a large degree has given the American consumer is the option to choose uh, a a path for themselves that makes themselves uh, express their own individuality and maybe their individuality is a sweatpants wearer and that's cool. And maybe their individuality is, you know what, I haven't worn that sweater in a long time. I'm going to put it on today for my Zoom call, and you end up wearing it a couple days in a row. So yet again, our wardrobe has just become more and more individualized, and the pandemic has sped that you know, into existence, and we're going to be living with the ramifications of it for a long time.
0: Well, wow. That is beautifully put. And Deirdre, thank you so much for your time. I had so much fun talking with you. Deirdre Clemente is a costume curator and a fashion historian at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I spoke with her while she was sitting in her closet, too. —
2: Here is—this is one of my favorites, which is a a kimono, a hand-painted kimono. I'm a big kimono person. —
0: It got me thinking about the takeaways from our conversation. Number one, what we think of as acceptable to wear shifts over time. Our cultural dress codes derive from what we personally value, what the cultural elite in any given era promotes, and what the collective, all of us, choose to follow. Number two, casualization, athleisure, sweatpants at the airports, was accelerated by the pandemic, and it's here to stay. If this makes you a bit sad, as it does me, remember the good news. We've never had more room to choose what we wear. So if high heels are your love language, don't be afraid to bust them out below your desk, even if everyone else is wearing hokas or their slippers to work. Number three, the research is mixed when it comes to whether casual clothes make us happier or more productive at work. So wear what makes you feel happy. And number four, fashion trends respond to creativity. Employer mandated Hawaiian shirt day may be a thing of the past, but you could always invent a new ritual for work from home self-expression, like dress up on Zoom Fridays, or something I might try, wear your closet Thursdays. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick, and our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock, Feliz Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lohr, Gabriela Tayenda, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart, and I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown special thanks to our guest Kira C for sharing her story. And for more tips on working remotely, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com.